Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to please turn to Daniel chapter 7. And I hope to finish this chapter this morning. Um, the last time I spoke on Daniel, we looked at the first half of it, and we saw Daniel having another vision like unto the one he had in Daniel chapter 2. He sees four beasts that represent four kingdoms, and I described the details of three of them, and I told you what the last one was and how we know it. And um, we, we know that it's the Roman Empire because Daniel gets to see a vision of the victory of Christ and his ascension back to heaven after our sins were judged in him, and he died and rose from the dead and went back to his father, and all things have been put under his feet. That's what we looked at last time. But... Uh, Daniel wants to know more about what in the world he's just seen. It's a lot for him to take in. And so he goes up in verse 15 to what I'm presuming to be an angel. And uh, reading in verse 15, it says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known the interpretation of the things. And this is that, that individual speaking in verse 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So the first thing that Daniel is told is the end of this entire matter. This individual is going to explain more to him, but he starts off by saying, this is it, Daniel. This is the whole point in these two verses. There will be four kings that arise on the earth, but there will be another kingdom that is for the saints of God, and they will possess that kingdom forever, no matter what. So that's, that's the end of the matter. No matter what follows, that's it. This is the whole point, is that this kingdom will last forever. Then Daniel says, then I would know... The truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others. Exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamp the residue with his feet. And the horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before them three fell, before whom, fe before whom three fell. Even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and that same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So Daniel wants to know more about this fourth beast. He's curious because it's different than the other three. It's, it's a lot scarier, and he's frightened by it, so he asks specifically, what is this one? That's a good question because he also knows that this kingdom of the saints follows this one, so he wants more details on this last kingdom out of the earth. This is a description of the kingdom of Rome that would rise up after the Grecian Empire. And um, it's described there as having iron teeth and brass nails and ten horns in its head. It's a very disturbing image. And um, we looked at the previous... In looking at the previous beasts, we can understand why it's described this way. In particular, the, the leopard that we saw with the four heads and the four wings. I described to you that that was the empire founded by Alexander the Great. 
It was very fast in consuming the world. That's why it has four wings. But then after he died, it fell into the hands of four of his generals and their sons and their sons and their sons after them. So it has four heads because it had four leaders. This one has ten horns, which is similar to having four heads, but instead of having four heads, which would have four separate minds, it's ten horns and one head. So there's multiple leaders in this kingdom, but they all work together. They're not competing like Alexander's generals would. They work together together for the success of this kingdom. And if we look at history, we find that with Rome. It did not have a single king. They were a republic. They were one of the first republics in the world. They had a senate. They had representatives of the people. They had consuls. They had governors. They had people that went out to far reaches to take polls and came back and told them what they found. They had a multitude of leaders, but all of them worked together. They were dedicated to the success of the Roman kingdom. They did not compete with each other. Until a family known as the Caesars rolled, um, raised up. And that's the description of this little horn that comes up and three horns fall. This Roman Republic and this Roman Kingdom was marching across the whole world, destroying everyone in their path, consuming the whole of the Mediterranean. It was the largest empire the world had ever seen. And then there's a family that decides... They want to be in charge. They're not concerned with the good of the Republic. They're not concerned with the good of Rome anymore. They're concerned with themselves. So you have this description of this little horn having its own eyes. It is independent of the rest of it. It's looking for its own devices, its own success, not the rest of the kingdom. And it speaks great things. And the Caesars did that. You have um, Julius Caesar started it. He claimed he was the descendant of a god, and that's why everyone should obey him. His um, adopted son, Augustus, whom we read about in the book of Luke, who was emperor when Christ was born, um, when he became emperor, he brought in all of the statues of the Roman gods into his palace and then had them bring in a throne that was taller than all of these statues, and he sat on it. And basically, I think it was written at the bottom of it, said, I am God of the gods. That's what he said. After Augustus died, they offered sacrifices to him because they thought he was a god that had left them. So this, these men spoke, this little horn speaks great things about himself. He's after his own good, and he thinks he's God. And, um, but this kingdom arises, and uh, this little horn will oppress the people of God, the saints of God. But the Ancient of Days comes, and judgment is given unto them, and they possess this kingdom. So this little horn tries everything it can, but it doesn't work. The Ancient of Days still gives a kingdom to his saints. So the question is, how did that happen? Because when I read history, I find out Jesus came and the church was established, but the Roman Empire continued on after that. So how do I reconcile Daniel seeing that this kingdom fell and that God's kingdom stood? Well, Jesus' kingdom, as he would tell Pilate, is not of this world. It's nothing like the empires of this world and could conquer them in a way that no one could understand except for the saints of God and except for God because it is a different kingdom. We saw Christ's success in the, the previous verses, how he ascended into heaven. That's where our king sits. The kings of the earth sit on the earth and can be killed by men. Our king cannot be touched by men. He is in heaven. Right. He cannot be assaulted, so our king cannot fall. Therefore, our kingdom cannot fall. Amen. Um, we see in the story of the apostle Paul and the church there, the early church there, that God works in his church in ways that we cannot understand. The world tried to destroy the early church through the Apostle Paul. He tried to kill everyone that he could. He killed Stephen, tried to arrest people, and was headed up to Damascus to do the same thing. He scattered the 
church at Jerusalem, they fled to different parts of the world. So he's chasing them down into Damascus as well. He wants to catch them in every place and end the church everywhere. But on the way there, that man is completely changed. And he couldn't do anything about it. And so God wins because he has powers that, that are beyond the powers of men. And so this kingdom that continues, this Roman kingdom, is a conquered kingdom, even though it still exists. It was beaten by the church. We see that because, again, with Paul. Paul traveled throughout the whole world using Roman roads and sometimes Roman tax dollars as well. He was put on ships that were controlled by the Roman government. He was put in... Um, processions of soldiers because he was under arrest that were paid for by the emperor and he preached everywhere that he went. Um, later on, one of these Caesars, these little horns, would write to one of his governors and say, so I've persecuted this church. This man's name was Trajan. He per I've persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. I've, I've had the, the most success of any emperor at killing as many Christians as possible. And uh, he said, so my governors, what have you seen of this church? Is it gone yet? Have I won? And there was a man, his name was Pliny the Elder, wrote back to Trajan and said, No, you didn't. It appears to me as if the blood of their martyrs are seeds of more churches. This isn't working. Man could do nothing to stop this kingdom. Never right. could, never will. Amen. So that is the greatness of the kingdom of God. It's a mystery to me, honestly, because I, I enjoy reading history and I see how different kingdoms rise up. This one's so different, yet has so much more success. <clears throat> let's keep going here um, thus he said the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms we saw that because it's a republic not a, not a monarchy like some of the other ones and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces all these other kingdoms they, they took as much as they could but they could never get as much as Rome ever did nor could they control the rest of the world like Rome did and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings. These aren't uh, ten sequen sequential kings, nor did they have the title of kings. These are ten rulers that, um, well, it's actually ten divisions of power are represented by ten horns. They're not literal kings. That shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And so we saw how Caesar robs this Roman government of its power. It takes away around three-tenths of the power of Rome and keeps it for itself. And if, if you start comparing different things that the Caesars did, that's about what they did. That they, they were supposed to be divided amongst the people and amongst the senators, amongst the consuls, and they said, I want a little bit from you, I want a little bit from you, and I want a little bit from you. They killed everyone that was a direct threat to them, and they set themselves up as emperors. They stole power from Rome. They weren't elected to be leaders of Rome. They stole it. And we talked about how you shall speak great words uh, against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of time. All right, that's a very interesting phrase. And there is no end to the possibilities that people think up as to what this means. But I know that Jesus was on the earth for 33 and a half years, and that his ministry was three and a half years. So I have a time, I can say that's one year, times, that has to be at least two, so that gives me three, and a dividing of time, that gives me three and a half. And so three and a half is a description of God's time, when God wants to do something, when God knows when it's going to happen and we don't. So that little phrase there pops up later on in Daniel several more times, 
And what it means is God knows this timing. We do not. So don't worry about it. God has a set time. God knows when he was going to bring down the Roman Empire. He knows when he was going to send Christ. And he knows when, um, he knows the best time, and we don't. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So he gives this description. Christianity is going to spread. The kingdom of God is going to spread despite what the Romans are going to try to do. The Romans think they still have power, but they really don't. It's been taken away from them, and God has established his kingdom. Um, so this little horn, this, this little deceiver, this, this guy who speaks great words, is a shadow of something else. And um, there's a lot of speculation that goes way too far into, into talking about this and, how, and what all we can know from this about, about what this individual shadows. If you recall from previous sermons that you've probably heard, you've heard about types and shadows of Christ. You've heard about David being a type of Christ. You've heard about, I mentioned Cyrus being a type of Christ and things like that. So it stands to reason there can be types of other things. And this little horn is a type of something called Antichrist. But, um, so let's go over to John chapter 2 real quick so we understand what exactly that is. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 and verse 18, John the Apostle tells us, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The religious world, lots of, lots of other Christian denominations will get hung up on descriptions of Antichrist in the Old Testament and Revelation, and will have long treatises about how scared we should be. But John makes this quite simple here. Little children, it is the last time. There's nothing that's going to happen in this world that massively changes except for the return of Christ. That's it. There will be no... In the Old Testament, they were looking for the Messiah to come. That was a change of times. It went from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There will be no changing of times. It is the last time. The next big thing that's going to happen from God will be the return of his son. And he says, you have heard that Antichrist shall come. Um, even now are there many antichrists. When I've heard this explained, I often get confused in thinking John is saying that it's not true that antichrist shall come. There's actually many antichrists, but he's saying both at the same time. There will be an antichrist to come, but you shouldn't get hung up or afraid of that because there's already an antichrist to deal with, and they all work exactly the same way. They are against Christ. That's the definition of the name. And so this little horn, we saw what he did. He robbed powers from other kingdoms. He set himself up as a god and spoke great things and was interested in his own will and his own well-being. He didn't care about anyone else. Every antichrist does the same thing. So what was Daniel supposed to do in order to deal with this? What, did, what, did, what was he supposed to be looking for? He was supposed to be looking for the kingdom of God. He's like, don't worry about this little horn that will rule. Don't worry about all, all these other kingdoms. Look for this kingdom. This will beat all of them. And so that actually carries over to what we are supposed to do. Yes, there will be an Antichrist. Yes, there's many Antichrists now. There's many things that work against our Lord and against his kingdom. And if you get distracted trying to find all of them or find this one great Antichrist that will come later, you'll probably get deceived by them because you're not thinking about the right things. 
it's actually quite simple. What we are to think about, we're supposed to think about Christ's kingdom and his success. The Jews were supposed to be looking for the coming of the Messiah. And if you go over to John 18, real quick, excuse me, John 19 and 15, they stopped looking for the right things. They stopped looking for the Christ of the Bible, and they started looking for a Christ that they thought was more human. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted a mighty king. They didn't want the Messiah that Jesus Christ was. And it got to the point that they got so confused that in John 19, 15, Pilate has taken Jesus out before the Jews and said, well, he says this. Uh, let's go back to verse 14. And it was the uh, preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said unto the Jews, this is, uh, this is Pilate speaking, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest, so this is the best, the most knowledgeable of all the Jews, replied to him, uh, the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So you have this little horn in the Old Testament that deceived the supposed most knowledgeable men on the Bible. He hadn't even been there. Maybe the high priest had made him, met him. Maybe, but I doubt it. So he's over in Rome, and they say, we have no king but Caesar. They say, this man is not our king. The Messiah isn't our king. They, shouldn't, they should have said, we're waiting for our king. We don't have a king yet. But they say, this man's our king. Caesar is our king. And that's how he shows his... his um, Nature is Antichrist. He deceived the Jews into thinking that he was their king, even though God should have been their king. Becoming Messiah should have been That's their right. king. And so there are men today that do the same thing. They puff themselves up. They say they're great leaders. And you can follow them to a degree, but you cannot be looking to what they say is right, to what they say we should do. You should be looking back to the word of God and what God said about his kingdom and how you should operate in his kingdom Men of this world should not be teaching us how we're supposed to act in the church. They should not be controlling the church. It's one of the reasons our founding fathers wrote so much on the separation of church and state. They didn't want the church controlling the state or the state controlling the church. They wanted people going back and forth. They wanted religious people, but they didn't want elders saying government should be this way, and they certainly did not want government officials saying church has to be this way, because that's wrong. The only government official that gets to say how the church works is the king of the church, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's uh, go back to Daniel 7. We'll read that last verse. Verse 28. So, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cog- cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. There's going to be things in life and things we read in the scriptures that might trouble us and confuse us. But we've seen the end of the matter. Christ still wins. We need to take our time and figure those things out that confuse us in the Bible or might frighten us. But we need to, of course, remember the end of the matter, which is what Daniel's going to do. He's going to pray about this. He's going to continue to study, even though his countenance has fallen because he's afraid and doesn't understand. But he does remember the end of the matter, that this kingdom is going to come and this kingdom is going to win. We should remember the end of the matter. Our kingdom shall stand forever, no matter how bad it gets or how many deceivers are out there. Our, our king is going to win and is going to come back to get us. Amen. And the Lord bless you all. A hearty amen to the things that we have heard. Yes, Jonah and I live in the same house and we do study together, but our topics were not intertwined until now. Um, 
That last verse of Daniel 7 is one that um, I don't want people to use it and I don't want myself to use it as an excuse to be afraid. But it gives me comfort to know that I don't always understand things. Daniel didn't either. And so I need to do what Daniel did, and that's not give up. And that's remember the big picture. Because um, when we don't, then we get caught up in the wars and rumors of wars. We get caught up in worrying about finances. We get caught up in worrying about world finances. We get caught up in worrying about a war that's not in our country or that's possibly in our country. We start fighting amongst ourselves when we forget that 2,000 years ago, a death blow was given to the one that influences all the Antichrists. What we've forgotten is Satan's kind of like when you shoot an armadillo. It does a death dance, and he's been doing a death dance for about 200 years, jumping around all over the place, making a mess, looking scary, but he's lost. And when we forget that, we get scared. Because sometimes it doesn't look like he's lost. Whether we believe that he is still bound or that he is let loose. Even when he was bound, he was bound with a chain, which means he had some influence beyond the post that he was chained to. But what we need to realize is how Jesus described him. He says, Satan's going about like a roaring lion. You know, when I was a boy, we used to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. You remember that came on on Sunday nights. And they showed a lot of documentaries of how the animals lived in the wild. And I remember very distinctly how lions hunt when they're about to kill, and they're very quiet. They sneak around, and they find a prey out by itself. But that's when they've already picked out who they're looking to kill. Before that, they roar to try and scare somebody away from the rest of the flock. Satan's going about and doing a pretty good job of scaring the Lord's people away from the flock so that he can come at them quietly and they don't know what's going on. Now we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will not be eternally lost. But folks, if the devil gets a hold of us here in time, it is horrible. And we've seen in ourselves and in our loved ones and too many times in the church through history where people will separate themselves for whatever reason, and the devil can get a hold of them. Now, I said our topics were related, and they are. If you'll turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to continue in the opening portion of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul is going to state the theme of why he wrote this letter. And the reason that he wrote this letter is the church at Corinth was divided. Honestly, what he is going to describe 
is the groups of people started acting like Antichrist. The church at Corinth is, well, if Paul wrote it to, wrote to them today, he'd say, you're the woke church. You want everything your way, everybody getting to do their own sin, getting to think their own way, and you're just coming together under the name of Christ to try and cover up how bad you really are. This ecumenical church, this eclectic church, this church that was existing in a place that is bizarre that there would even be a church there, the nastiest of nasty cities, Corinth. But it is a church. But the problem is, is its members had started bringing too much of the world into their own thoughts. And when it came into their thoughts, it came in to the church. And so now the church is divided. He uses the word divisions. We'd use, we can say schisms. The actual Greek word there is schismata, schisms, divisions among people. Now, I've never been a member of a church large enough to have this many divisions in it. <laughs> but I am going to be honest with you. I have seen all of these divisions that we're going to describe amongst Old Baptists as a whole, which means we're foolish in some of the things that we do. Paul says these words, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Right here we have the goal or one of the major goals of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to be in unity. If it was the job of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring world peace, the Apostle Paul would have taught it right here. Which, by the way, it's never taught. Because it is not the job of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring world peace. And if we look at the news and we look at the things that are going on around us, we might be like Daniel was, and the cogitations of our mind will discourage us because it seems like when we finally have a horrible enemy defeated, another one pops up. But what we arrogant Americans need to realize is we're just as big an enemy to God by the things that we do in our nation. You know, not only did we teach the world that it was all right to kill in the womb, we fund it in a good portion of the earth. You can't tell me that the United States of America as a nation is doing any better than Russia or China in many things. And so if we look for peace and unity on a world scale, we are going to be disappointed. It will never happen until the Lord returns. Because we live in a sin-cursed earth, and it's not because Jesus is not on his throne. It is the fact all things are put under his feet in that he has defeated his enemies. We don't see it yet. It hasn't played out in time. 
when it plays out in time, I mean, you can look at Revelation. Whether you look at Revelation as, as something that was written early or something that was written later, there's one theme that goes all the way through. There are these enemies that come up against God. There are these enemies that come up against the church. Time, wave upon wave, it comes. And every single time it gets to the point where it looks like the devil and his minions are going to win, Christ stepped in and it's all over. There's never a battle. Why? Because the battle took place on the cross 2,000 years ago. That battle doesn't need to happen again. <laughs> he just needs to say, all right, you're done. And cast him away into everlasting torment, which he'll do. And so if we are looking for religion or we're looking for government or we're looking for a philosophy to bring peace into our world, folks, we are going to be disappointed if we are looking for a particular politician or a particular uh, political party to bring peace into the United States of America, we are going to be disappointed. They may do some things that we like, but they're men. And they're going to be looking out for themselves a lot of times. There are a few statesmen left, very few. And so you're saying, well, Brother Bryce, you're just telling us it's just hopeless. With those two solutions, yes, I am. Because that's the solution of Babylon. That's the solution of Persia. That's the solution of Greece. That's the solution of Rome. That's the solution of the devil. But the kingdom that can continue on even though there are other kingdoms out there in the world that look like they're in charge, the kingdom that can go on and have peace is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, now remember, Paul is writing this while the Caesars are in charge. One of them's going to kill him. He is going to kill millions of Christians. That fellow Trajan that, that Jonah spoke of, he's a bad fellow. But Paul doesn't focus on that. He says, Corinth, your problem's not the city of Corinth. Your pro problem is not that you're a province of the Roman Empire. Your problem is not that Caesar's on the throne or that your particular senator that you wanted didn't get in charge. Corinth, your problem and the reason you're not at peace is you, the church, is divided. So what I'm saying is, you can find unity and peace while you're alive here on earth. But I think the Bible is abundantly clear. It can only be found in one place. True peace can only be found in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet look at the evidence. God's people have exited the one thing that God gave us. The Lord's people forsake time and time and time again. I thought the attacks on September the 11, uh, 2001, there was hope that people would repent and get back to church. And one Sunday they did. <laughs> and then it began to dwindle. But I'm going to tell you plainly, post-pandemic, 
The exodus from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is massive compared to the way it was 20 years ago. We had a physical attack from a physical enemy that we could see. And there was somewhat of an exodus. We have a clear enemy working behind the scenes. And I'm not talking about George Soros or anybody like that. I'm talking about we can see the devil at work. I don't know if he caused this pandemic, but I know he's used it. And the people are scared. Why is it? Because after September 11th, we relied on a government to rebuild our lives and rebuild our hope. Our hope is not in Washington, D.C. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, little caveat here. I'm not saying don't go vote. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, though, if you put more importance in politics than you do in coming to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, your vote doesn't matter because the Lord says, fine, you're going to get who you ask for. There's folks that I voted for in the history that I voted that once they got into office, man, I wanted to hide the fact that I voted for them. They lied to me. But Jesus never lies. So when Paul is talking about this unity, I even want you to notice how he does this. He says, now I beseech you. Paul was an apostle. He could say, I command you. He doesn't. He says, I beg you. You ever wondered why preachers beg because we don't have the authority to command. We can describe the commandment of God. But normally we are begging because we have already proclaimed the command of God and the consequences if you don't follow it, and the people didn't listen. And so we're begging. It's like, hey, come on. You can't see it, but everybody else can, that the world, like a sledgehammer, is hanging right over your head. <laughs> I'm begging you, wake up. Paul says, I beseech you, brethren. Notice there is no threat of not being a child of God in this. And so when I speak or another brother speaks or the church speaks as a whole in trying to help people get their lives more on track, we're not supposed to be using language of threatening with eternal destruction. And you know what? This church doesn't do that. So if people think we're saying that, they're wrong. We're brethren. Because let's be honest. If a person that I absolutely hated was about to be run over by a truck, it might be really easy for me to walk in a store and get a Diet Coke than help him. So I say nothing. I wouldn't do that. I'll yell. <laughs> Compassion for human life. But you get my point. But if it's somebody that I love, I'm going to be yelling at them. I'm going to be screaming at them. I'm going to be grabbing them and pulling them and making them downright uncomfortable. Because sometimes that has to happen. I'll, I've got kids, and so they know what happens with preacher's kids. They get used as stories. I don't remember how old Rebecca was. She was been able to walk for a little while. And we were in a parking lot, 
And she took off running away from us. And I yelled. She didn't respond. And I saw a car coming. And if she'd have kept going, she was, her head was about bumper high. Wouldn't have lived through it. And so I did the best thing that I knew how to do. I shoved her down. I couldn't grab her. She was that much out of reach, but my fingertips could touch her enough to knock her down. Now, she got scraped up, and she cried, and she was mad at me, but she wasn't dead. (laughs) She didn't get destroyed by that car. And so one of the things that we have here in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have in this pattern to the church at Corinth is discipline must happen. It's for the good of the Lord's people. It's not for the purity of the church because the church is never going to be pure because it's made up of sinners saved by grace. Notice when you're saved by grace that you don't stop being a sinner. You're a sinner saved by grace. The old man's still there. It shows up every once in a while and shows his foolish head. But we're called to be different. And so Paul says, now I beseech you, brethren, that you figure out how to get along. Can't we all just get along? He says something very specific here, and I have a word underlined in this verse. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I read this a bunch of times, and I listened to it on a, I got an audio of Max uh, McLaren or whatever his name is that plays it to me on the way to work. And it wasn't just till a couple of days ago that I caught that. He doesn't say, by our Lord Jesus Christ that you speak the same thing. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. A name defines who a person is. And so the ecumenical solution of the world is, let's just use the name of Christ, but teach any doctrine that we want and just use the name of Christ. Now, that's not much different than that fellow that was wanting to pay to be able to give miracles away. Not much different than the seven sons of Sceva that worked in the name of Jesus into their incantations. It's not just a name. It is the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says this because he wants the definition of who Jesus Christ is taught in this church again. What? Yes. Who Christ is was no longer being taught. Now I'm going to come back to this. But we know Matthew 121 says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, colon, for he shall save his people from their sins. A definite Savior that is successful. Paul says the solution to everything that I'm going to tell you in the next 15 and a half chapters is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That tells me there was a place that was called a church that wasn't teaching the finished work of Jesus Christ. They hadn't lost their identity yet. But how did that happen? Paul taught there longer than he taught anywhere else. How did this happen? Well, that church had that that old... uh, Elder so-and-so, he was the most respected elder among us, so that church is certainly sound to this day. Folks, this just a few years after Paul left. That church wasn't sound anymore, but still a church. 
Why? Because the Lord's patient. <laughs> He's long-suffering. If the Lord cast out a group because they made a mistake for a short time, there wouldn't be any old Baptist churches left. The sign of the true church is not that it has never had error. It's that it repents of it and returns back to the truth after time. And that's what we need to be trying to do. But let's look at what he says. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye speak the same thing. He didn't say think. He says speak. So this means that there are different doctrines being taught at Corinth. He's speaking to the leadership. Well, this church also had the miraculous spiritual gifts of that time. And so the regular congregation had the ability to speak in languages that they'd never studied. They had the ability to prophesy. Those gifts which have died away, they weren't even speaking the same thing. They were given a gift by God and they were misusing it. That's dangerous. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. If Paul is beseeching them to do it, that means it's possible. And that's what I'm looking for. I know there will never be 100% peace at my job. There will never be 100% peace on Chandler Road. There will never be 100% peace in this earth. But Paul says you can find it one place. And that's the one place that I preach about. And that's the one place that I know I can come and find it. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren. He calls them brethren again. By them which are of the house of Chloe, that there be, that there are contentions among you. We have no idea who Chloe is. Chloe's mentioned right here. But Chloe, that's a woman's name. Good job, sister. There are four factions that have divided this church at Corinth. We're going to look at them. Four factions that have divided this, and it scared this sister. She didn't like it. She said, Paul, help. She's not spreading a rumor. She's not talking about anybody. She just says, this is what's happened at my church. I know it's not right. Help. If you're the one that recognizes there's a problem, say something. <laughs> Be Chloe. Notice what he says, that there are contentions among you. Now, in the previous verse, he says, I need you to have the same judgment. That's discernment. That is making the same doctrinal decisions and statements which bring peace, the opposite of which is contention. So this tells me right here that the ecumen, whatever that word is, the idea that doctrine divides is wrong. Man's doctrine does divide. The doctrine of the finished work of Jesus Christ unites. You say, well, Brother Bryce, there are some folks that don't believe in election. Then they believe a man's doctrine, and that's divided them out. You see my point? <laughs> We've been given the doctrine of reconciliation. That's not reconciling you to God. God did that in Jesus Christ. It's my job to reconcile in your mind that God did it. Be quiet and be happy about it because you couldn't do it. 
That's one of the doctrines that was there. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Whoo, four divisions. Some say, I'm of Paul. I was there at the beginning of this church. My family was a founding member. And so what I'm saying needs to be listened to more than whatever everybody else says. Now, let me make sure you understand something. Paul's going to mention four groups here, and he's condemning all four. So he puts his name at the top of the list. If you're using my name to say that you have more power or ought to deserve a bigger vote, you're wrong. These are most likely the folks that were there early on. Then you got another group. I of Apollos. If you read in the book of Acts, Apollos was born and educated in Alexandria. Ooh. That means he went to Harvard. That means he had excellency of speech, was a great orator, so much so that at Ephesus, he got folks to be baptized wrong. <laughs> Get my point? People followed him, even though he was, had the wrong doctrine for a time. Now, by this time, he's got the right doctrine, but this group likes the polished preacher. So, Brother Bryce, how do you know that? Well, because this group talks about Paul. 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Who's that one? He's not my pastor. He doesn't look like Joel Austin. He don't look all fancy dress. He doesn't speak all nice fancy words. He doesn't have 14 letters after his last name for all the cemetery degrees that he has. That wasn't an accident, by the way. So the second group actually has contempt for the first group because they think the one they're following is a dud. But our, 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 we're, we're fancy over here. I am a Paul. I have Apollos. And I have Cephas. That's Peter. This is probably a bunch of Jews. See, our, our, our leader, by the way, I don't find any evidence that Peter ever went here. <laughs> so this one seems strange to me. But... You know, Peter was with Jesus before Paul was. So if you folks that are of Paul think you're the founding members, no, 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 no. We're the founders movement here. We can trace our history further back than you. We go all the way back to Peter. You know, the guy that denied Christ three times, that opened his mouth too much. Now, they don't want to remember that part. But you see what I'm saying? is you got a group? Well, I was with Paul at the start of it. Well, 
preacher I like, he, he's, he's the best orator. He, he can argue down anybody out there in the world, which, by the way, that's not the job of a preacher. Well, this group was, well, y'all think that y'all got it. We, we, we trace all, all the way back. We were, we were Jews. These fellas are a little racist. And then I of Christ. So when people would think that, well, there are three bad groups in one group, because at least this group is saying they're just following Christ. No. Paul doesn't make any distinction of them. This is the most arrogant group of all. No earthly man has taught me anything. I got everything from God. That's what this group thinks. I've met some folks like that. I'm reminded of the Ethiopian eunuch. When a poor preacher runs out there in the desert to meet him, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I accept some man guide me? This was an educated man that knew he needed a teacher. I've seen a lot of educated men that think they're smarter than their preacher. And you know what? In worldly things, they might be. But that's not how God designed it. God did design that the father is Christ in the home. But he taught families to come to church. The family was the first organization, but the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. I'm not saying that I'm the ultimate authority. I'm saying the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. I come here to learn as well. Y'all have seen me stand right here in front of you and say, whoa, wow, I didn't see that before. You have seen me be taught by other ministers of the gospel here in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is where truth comes. This is where truth is sent out to the rest of the world. I'm thankful it happens here. I'm thankful it happens in many places. So these four groups have made a mess. So Paul says, is Christ divided? The Psalms say that his body wouldn't be broken. It's confirmed in John 19 that it was not. So the physical body of Jesus Christ is not broken. We look at Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. The number of foreknown is the same number that's glorified. So the mystical body of Christ, the uh, elect of God, is not divided. So why is the church? It's not Christ's fault. It's our fault. Church at Corinth's fault. Is Christ divided? Notice this. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Now, it wasn't that... Uh, we're going to teach about baptism a little bit on this later because the subject's all over the place right here. But Paul is saying, I'm really glad that I had a pattern that the other fellows around me did the baptizing so that y'all can't blame me for this and that I didn't set the pattern for this. And there's a real excellent litmus test right there. We all have... I mean, we're human. We all learn different ways. But if we start making preferences of what preacher we want to hear, we need to ask that question. Did Brother Bryce die for me? Was he crucified for me? No, I was not. Did Brother so-and-so, did he hang on the cross for you? 
No. We are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We tell about your Savior. These men weren't doing that. Whoever it was that was making these factions, it's not the titles of the groups, it's whoever decided to use those names, thought more of themselves than they thought of Christ. So Paul's conclusion is, the problem that you have there at Corinth is that these four divisions are based upon personal preference, based upon arrogance, based upon a level of comfortability. I'm comfortable with that. Well, if the preacher you're listening to never makes you uncomfortable, number one, he's either not preaching the whole gospel of God, or number two, you're not listening. If you're never made to feel uncomfortable in church, you're going to something that's not church, or you're not there. And that's what was happening at Corinth. The problems that happened, they're getting drunk at communion. There's a case of fornication in the church that everybody knows about, and they're not doing anything about it, which is condoning it or excusing it or saying it's okay. Paul says this is how it started. It didn't start when somebody said, I'm going to sneak in this sin or I'm going to sneak in this practice. It started with doctrine. They weren't speaking the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ. They weren't teaching what Paul had taught them to teach. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul tells Timothy, teach what I taught you so that you can teach other men so that they can teach other men. That's not a seminary. That's a father in the ministry, passing it to a father in the ministry, passing it to a father in the ministry, so the doctrine remains pure in the church. Jude tells us that we're to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. The faith, that's a set of truths. That's the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I beseech you. Do you want peace? Do you want to be able to dwell in a peaceful kingdom even though the kingdoms of this world are raging around you? Paul said the secret is the name of Jesus Christ. It's not a better job. It's not a different house. It's not a new car. It's not anything of this world. The problems that were happening at Corinth, and remember we talked about how bad it got. They had turned away from the Lord so much that some of them had gotten sick, and they had gotten sick and they had died. And the problem wasn't Caesar. The problem wasn't the governors. The problem wasn't the economy. The problem wasn't the sin in the city of Corinth. The problem was the church was divided. That's scary. But if you have a peaceful church, you have something that's absolutely beautiful. Let's turn over, and I'm just going to read the beauty of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ found in Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll close this out. Ephesians 4. We'll start in verse 10. He that descended... Is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow. Church makes us more like Christ. That, here's the piece, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking, speak, speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The secret to peace and strength and hope in a fallen world is the body of Christ, the local church. If it's a true church, the gifts are there. What it needs are there. And it edifies, it builds up, it strengthens, and it's in love. May the Lord bless you all is my prayer.